Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to the next Real Speakeasy on Rashpixel.fm. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. It's Pete Wright. The next Real Speakeasy is a podcast where we invite a guest from the industry to join us, and instead of serving up their favorite cocktails, they serve up movies that they love so that we can all talk about them. We'd like to welcome our guest to this month's show, cinematographer and entrepreneur Nick Sadler. Hey there, Nick. I feel jilted. I, was, I, I had cocktails ready to go. <laughs> well, send one over. So this is not about drinking? <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> 
could be. It's it always is never about too drinking. late for that. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is not really about the film industry. Uh, so Nick uh, graduated in 1985 with a BA in communications and film studies. He began working as a PA, then later as a camera assistant in film and television before moving to London in 1989. There, he uh, worked for six years, primarily as first camera assistant to Johnny Matheson, best known as the cinematographer on the film Gladiator. In 1995, he began his career as a cinematographer in his own right, shooting music videos. He shot over 200 music videos, 30 concert films, 500 commercials, numerous TV shows, and three award-winning feature films. And I think from there, I you know, let's just jump in. Let's start with cinematography. You moved to L.A. shortly after that, and I will say, Pete and I just watched a film that you uh, you co-shot, I guess I could say, uh, called Coherence, which we had a fantastic time with. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting one, Coherence. So we, that was... Jim Burkett, I worked with him before on um, Pirates of the Caribbean. We did this kind of very expensive short film. Most short films you make for, I don't know, like $10,000. You know, this short film had a budget of just shy of a million bucks. Wow. And it was um, basically a, a ruse by the studio to keep the um, the Black Pearl set open, as far as I could see. I mean, it, it wasn't making a lot of sense. Jim had done a lot of the previs on, um, with Gore uh, Verbinski on on the on the pirates and he's a very accomplished filmmaker himself and he um, contacted me so we did this um crazy short film which is like an extension of um one of the scenes in um, pirates is called wedding bells where the um two um uh disreputable women who are associated with jack sparrow um uh, think they're gonna, both going to get married to him but they're actually they're getting sold off at a slave kind of on a, a slave ship it's quite, it's, it's quite funny so um we we'd worked on this kind of crazy million dollar 12 minute short and then we went from that to uh, a feature film which we shot in three days so a whole of coherence is shot in three days oh my goodness so it was i got him i got involved kind of early on and i set up how we were going to do it um uh, there was the, there were some reshoots that um that um, and some pickups that were done um when i wasn't available that's this they're the other dp that's credited but essentially gotcha. uh, my task was to work with the gym to figure out how to develop to deliver something um, of the scope of coherence in a very, very short space of time. And we literally had three days to, to shoot it in. And we what we did is we mapped it out a bit like a play. Uh, we shot it with um, with multiple cameras um, a couple of times a night, and we did it all all the way through. And I learned a lot of interesting things about, um, about how to go about filmmaking from a, a different perspective because I don't – I'm a – a uh, one part of my life is very technical and the other part of my life is very chaotically kind of artistic. Um, so I try and jam these two things together into to make something to make something work, and and it's it, it usually ends up being a, a technical um, a technical decision you have to make about which way you're going to be going with things. But I think it worked out okay. It's a it's a it's for the for the kind of film it is. It worked out much much better than I was expecting. I I know we came together to talk about a different film altogether, but I have to know because I had such a fantastic time at, at this film. I just need to know a little bit more because you said something that triggered me. <laughs> it's a trigger trigger event. You, <laughs> you said you it's had trigger three word. Days, you put you put all the you had people shooting In three eight hour days. Three, <laughs> not, not long days. Three eight hour days. <laughs> I'm thinking 72 straight hours that you just start shooting and don't sleep. And no, I can no, see that happening. But eight hour days and you had you did it straight through. Yeah. So we basically like a play, you know, a, a, wow. a, a, like a, a, a play would last um, of, of that kind of material, giving the fact you're cutting it down to a shade over an hour and a half. Right. You've got 
um, you've got two hours, two and a half hours of time to be able to play that out in real time. So that the um, the story is pretty much in real time. It jumps. The chronology um, is is pretty linear, and it takes place in one very limited location. So it was over length. We played it out like a play, shot it um, as creatively, creatively as we could, and then made running decisions as to how to cover things. I, I, um, the all of the lighting for the um, for the film is in the center of the room. We lit, I lit the entire film from stuff we bought at IKEA. So um, <laughs> so the the lighting budget didn't involve any traditional film equipment at all. I just, I just abandoned that. It was like it was pointless. So I went to um, we got um, I got paper Chinese lanterns, LED light bulbs, um, in hand domestic d- the dimmers. Um, and wired it. I did it all myself, and just wired it all into the um, into the ceiling roses, and made up a lighting rig that um, that we couldn't see. Now the reason why we couldn't see it is the the aspect ratio of the film is two three nine to one. Um, the re- there's a there's two reasons why we did it that way. One, and this is something that Jim, the director, doesn't really. I don't think he remembers these conversations, <laughs> but kind of. <laughs> they're in they're indelibly fixed in mind because I just can't forget stuff stuff like this. Um. In order to keep the lights out, I needed to make sure that there was virtually no headroom and, and that the, yeah. the rooms didn't have any, any height. So the, one of the problems of shooting a widescreen in, um, in, um, inside is that you just don't see ceilings. And, and it, it, it is, is slightly claustrophobic and, and is disconcerting. Claustrophobic and disconcerting is two things that I wanted for this, so there wasn't a problem. Yeah, I think that was but actually I, the tagline on the poster. Coherent, much, yeah. claustrophobic, and disconcerting. <laughs> so, so they gave me a license to be able to put stuff in the ceiling that I knew I wouldn't be able to see. And and what's more, that we were sh- we shot it with um, DSLRs, five Ds. We had four of them, um, uh, with prime lenses, and the, the, those those were kept pretty consistent. So, um, the there was it's possible to intercut between the cameras pretty easily. And then we could see the lights um, in the viewfinder, and we could we could deliberately frame them out of our. Um, our, our showing of our exposed area um, by seeing them all the time. So they were always, when we look uh, framing up with the camera, we could always see the lights and we were always keeping the lights just outside a shot. The other part of the equation was that um, we were training the actors into knowing where the camera would be and where their eye lines would draw and trying not to move the cameras too much. So um, you could place the camera in a position. It was all handheld as well. So you could put the camera in a position, hold a line, knowing that an actor would fill the negative space. So um, it's, it, you know, if you're dealing with an actor and saying, hey, look, um, you, with an actor, you never say, dude, come stand here. You say, you look fantastic here. <laughs> <laughs> then they'll stand wherever you want. You could say, you look fantastic here. It could be on the edge of a windy cliff. They wouldn't give a toss. <laughs> they'll stand there. If, you know, you appeal to their vanity. It goes well every single time. So if you if you say to an actor, you, you want you want screen dominance, come here and show the back of your head, and then you'll kill a line. Turn the camera and deliver it. You know, or, or, or cross the camera and work it in your head. Like you think, okay, I've got. The, the, it's not on me at the moment, but when it comes to me, the audience is going to look at me. So be in a place in the frame whereby you can then control that emphasis. And for God's sake, don't do it all of the time because then you look like a screen hog and no one likes that. <laughs> that's just that's brilliant. <laughs> that is so cool. It was so much fun. So when you so you shot it all together. When people when when the characters left the room, right? When but they leave the house, the, the two guys leave the house. There's cameras um, outside. Picking there's them up. cameras outside shooting. So they're shooting. Essentially, you're getting coverage of them while you're still shooting on the inside. Yeah. 
And, and, and that, to me, that was like an, a, a part of the economy. I was thinking, you know, this, there's no reason why not to shoot that way. And the actors are really engaged with it. And it's something I want to do again under different circumstances. There, I don't think there's any reason not to um, to tell really good stories economically if you can get everyone to play a different game. Filmmaking is filmmaking is like a um, there's a uh, a flow to it and there's a technique to it. And with new technologies, that flow and technique can change over time. And I'm I'm really into the psychology of it, and I'm interested in screwing with people um, to to get them <laughs> to um, to get different performances or different look or a different approach and tell. More interesting stories. Very Soderbergh of you. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah. Slightly different pay scale there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, what I think is so fascinating about you is aside from the fact that you're a working cinematographer, you also started up this company, Chemical Wedding, in which you design uh, your, it's kind of like you're an entrepreneur in the in the field of tools for filmmakers right you've you've made this great tool artemis prime that is basically like a director's viewfinder that they can use with their iphone or ipad you've done uh the the pro light simulator helios that uh that they can use and then uh the um uh the hd tool that you also have right there's a number of different things the light simulation one yeah yeah i've been i've been tinkering around with um with technology for a long time but when i was in england i um uh had a few ideas about pieces of equipment that i'd wanted to use and um and they got made after after i talked about it with companies they said like i want to do this they those that equipment got made and actually got sold without me really benefiting from it at all and it's happened two or three times i made a uh, it, for Ari in London, I made a the, one of the very early swing shift systems um, w- when we used a, a Sinar plate camera front end, um, and well, I did that way before that became a um, kind of a successful kind of tool to use in cinematography. Um, I I made one, but then I made I made a, um, a prototype of a light that became the Ari Ruby Seven. I've been kind of tinkering around with this lo- for a long time. It wasn't until I came to LA that it it, it occurred to me that. Um, I, I could actually do it and, and make money out of it and, um, and uh, have a life doing that kind of stuff as well as the cinematography I was doing. And, and it, to a weird, in a weird way, I got distracted from cinematography getting into the technology side of things. So the very first thing we did as a company is we invented um, when the, this is the iPhone hadn't come out yet. And I'm sitting at the back of my house with two friends of mine getting drunk and just talking, you know, doing the what if. And I said, look, there's this application. I, I use a desktop application that tells me sunrise and sunset times during the day. And everyone in the film industry uses this. You go out and set with a, a compass and a sighting inclinometer, inclinometer and this sheet of paper called Sun Path. And you figure out where the sun's going to come and when's, where, where it's going to go down and the length of the day and where the sun's going to be through the, through the day. And I said, it'd be great if this was just in your pocket and in your iPhone. And the iPhone wasn't even released yet, but we were hanging on it waiting for it to come out. So when the iPhone came out, we were already down the path of making an application, and Helios was the first thing that we made. We had to buy a database from NASA that had um, uh, the position of the sun in 15-minute increments from, for the next 100 years everywhere in the world. It was very expensive, <laughs> essentially an Excel document. That document is worth <laughs> absolutely nothing now. It's like it's, It has no commercial value at all because it's like virtually everywhere. And we made... Um, we made this first tool, and we 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 put it in the iPhone and the in the App Store, and we priced it at thirty bucks. And Apple was like, "Oh, thirty bucks? That's weird. That's like we were the most expensive app in the App Store." <laughs> this so was when they're all like ninety nine cents, right? Yeah. So in the early days of the App Store, it was um, we we were in the featured section, 
which is like you know they they would feature like four apps and four developers. So it was yeah. um, it was EA Games, Sony, um, someone else. So like someone like I think it was like NFL or something, and us. This three English man startup in LA with the most expensive app in the App Store. <laughs> And uh, from there, I, um, I, I came up with a, um, an idea for a director's viewfinder, which I actually sketched out on a piece of paper as I was flying back from a job. And I put it in front of my business partner. And he said, oh, this, this will never catch on. It's like, I can't, I can't see the point of this. Anyway, that's become like the most popular piece of software on set in the film industry. I mean, every single film up for an Academy Award this year was made in some way with that software. It's and fantastic. It's, <laughs> and that's been going back for years and years. And so basically, you know, you, you kind of um, – it swallowed my life, basically. The technology just swallowed me whole. So people now, know, they don't know me as a cinematographer much anymore. They know me as, oh, that's the guy you did, Artemis. You know, <laughs> you know. He's the one. I, what do you, I don't know how to read how you're saying that. Is that okay with you at some level? Or are you, uh, are you living with the, the weight of regret that, you're, uh, that you forked your life a little bit I'm too hard? I'm not at all regretful of it because, um, because I'm very proud of it. But um, but the, the there is so much about working in the creative arts that um, if people get to know you for something, they don't think of you as being much outside of that. It's very, very difficult to, you know, I, I don't consider myself to be one particular thing. I mean, I, I, I carve my life up between doing fine art stills photography that you can't show your mum. Which is fantastic. Also. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. But, but not, but not for you know, not for popular consumption, and it's a bit edgy, and it's like you know, that's I like it, and it, I think it's challenging, and I really enjoy it. So that's 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 kind of kind of commercial, but non-commercial. Then the um, my film work, which I'm doing less of now, but I want to get back into again, and then the technology side, which started with applications, is now turned into hardware. So I've designed a a physical viewfinder system called Artemis Prime that's I'm finding its way onto a lot of kind of bigger budget TV shows and movies at the moment. And I'm also um, consulting with a company that's designing lenses as well. So that's, and then I'm also doing a podcast every week, which is called From the Bunker. Um, and uh, I just don't, I just have this kind of very diffused life. It used to be that I was just a DP. But now, um, and this this is a strange thing with people in the film industry, that you self-identify with the job that you do. People say, what do you do? And i Prior to coming to LA, I would say, I'm a DP, you know? And they, when they go, oh, they, they know what you like. First, you never <laughs> buy anyone a drink. What's the difference between a drink? What's the difference between a DP and a coconut? I, I don't know. If you have a hammer, you can get a drink out of a coconut. <laughs> That's a classic cliche about DPs. See, so, so, so I, was, I was a DP and I come with all the DP baggage, you know, geeky, tight, um, uh, obsessive about certain stuff and that was all true and but now I've, I've got this much more diffused life where i'm much more kind of i've got an artistic side i've got a political side i've got a technological side and i've got the cinematography side and now people ask me what i do and i say i don't know i just don't know anymore i don't know where i am i just do stuff i get up in the morning and do stuff and whatever is in front of me i do that well let's talk about this movie yeah, so we are here to talk about uh, your favorite film, yeah. uh, or one of your favorite films, uh, I guess. It, Which it suddenly is, is not a surprise to me at all. It's definitively <laughs> the the most favorite film I have. I, I, I don't think there's I don't think there's a second. I don't think there's another contender. This is it. <laughs> the only one. <laughs> this movie and all the other movies that just exist. It's like from, from, when I saw this film, I I thought, right, that's it. This is what I want to do because it was, and I saw it when I was fourteen years old wow 
14, 15. Like, I don't think I was even supposed to see it at that age. And it yeah, had such an impression on me. <laughs> and to, to, it's for those who haven't seen the film, I'll just give a little synopsis on it. It's about a guy who's in the entertainment industry who falls in love with his own death. <laughs> it really it. is. And, it's, and, it's, and it was made by a guy who essentially the film's an autobiography and he checks out in exactly the same way that's shown in the movie. It's really, it's, it's not only prophetic, but it's, it's, and it's deeply touching and very funny. And, um, and it's basically become like a little, I don't know, is a prophecy of my own life in lots of ways. So, um, so, and it, it's also a kind of a, a warning, which I've heeded on so many occasions. I think, what would Joe Gideon do? I won't do that. <laughs> Stay away from that. If it's a prophecy of your own life, I'm I'm glad we got you when we did. I I don't even think we've said what the uh, what the movie is called yet. For those who haven't seen it, it's all that jazz. Yeah, it's a musical. I hate musicals. <laughs> I do. And I, I, I think of the the director I respect most in the world, um, Bob Fosse, was cut his teeth making musicals and b- b- prior to seeing um uh, all that jazz i would never consider seeing a musical i will balk at seeing a musical now but uh, he I, I don't think there's a single he didn't make a bad movie <laughs> he, he was a bona fide genius and a crazy pervert to begin to, to, to boot <laughs> he was a he, he's a very interesting figure absolutely and uh, this is a movie that he made it was it was the second to last film that he did and he didn't do a lot of films only I think what five? I he think? did. He started and, with Sweet Charity, then went on to Cabaret, did all that jazz, Lenny, and Star Eighty. And Star Eighty is 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 a masterclass in setting you up to feel incom- uncomfortable for almost two hours, because what he does is he starts with the brutality and then goes straight into the sweet stuff, and you can't get over the fact that the sweet stuff is going to end so badly. So even the, he, he, the, he juxtaposes, juxtaposes the, term, the two so quickly that you just cannot, you, you're just waiting for something really horrible to happen. It's just you know it when it's going to happen. You, you, you know the period. He just sets you up and manipulates you to feel bad the entire time. It takes a true psycho to do that. <laughs> Well, it's it's so interesting because this is this is a film that I've seen a number of times, and I, I will say when I first watched this was which was probably you know post college, like shortly after I graduated from college, something like that. I watched this film, and I just think I was not ready for it. It hit me in a way where I was like, "Wow, that was one of the most you know painful film experiences to watch." I don't think I ever want to see it again. But it was a film that stuck with me for a very long time. And then I remember I I remember they restored it and I watched it again when when it had been restored. And I, I, uh, I think they just released the Blu-ray or something like that. And I, I looked at it again and it hit me in a totally different way where I actually kind of, I don't know, I just felt like I got it. And it, it hit me in a way where it was this really powerful experience. And just watching Joe Gideon move through this period in his life where where he's just, you know, there's just uh, so many things happening and just all of this, this, this pain and love and, and uh, this drive for success and the, uh, the, the push that he has that's driving him to all of the, the, the pills and, and the, uh, just all the things that he needs to kind of keep moving. Um, it, I don't know. It just it hit me in a way where I'm like, wow, this is there's so much going on in this film, and just like that, the, it, it's saying so much about 
life in the entertainment industry and not just the entertainment industry. I think it really is just about life in, in any, any field where you are really trying to push yourself and you're, you're pushing, um, to get like great success. And, um, I, I don't know. It just, it, I found that there was actually a lot more in this film and I, and it really moved me. And I think upon rewatching it again, it's just, it's a film that I think, um, really says a whole lot. And what my question was that I, I found so interesting to, or just to think about is like, I, I understand that this is like, there's so much autobiographical information in this film about Bob Fosse and his life, but. Do you think that really matters? Like, do you think that somebody who knows nothing about Bob Fosse could just walk into this film and watch it and get something out of it that is as profound as if you know that, hey, this is really kind of a, a pseudo autobiography about uh, Bob Fosse? I'm with Fosse. The, um, the French semioticians with regards to the link between author and audience. Um, as far as I'm concerned, as soon as the film was made, the author may as well never have existed. So the director may as well just have evaporated into the ether. They're, they're that irrelevant to what the film does when it's being viewed. Now, a lot of people in the film industry and a lot of reviewers will say, hey, look, you know, I really feel like I'm accessing the other uh, director through what they've done. And I find I empathize. Well, that's just crap. I mean, like, you know, it's just crap. <laughs> I, I, I made this film called um, Intellectual Property that got changed to – the title got changed for Intellectual Property to Dark Mind with a, with a very talented director called um, Nick Peterson. And I, when I read the script, I thought, wow, man, this is like pretty over the dial. It's like pretty crazy. And Nick's like a Mormon and kind of quite, very quite conservative thinker. But at the same time, he wrote this deeply subversive film. Now, um, it didn't do great business here, but it did really well in Iran. And they read it like, like a, an anti-US parody. And yeah, you can read it that way. I mean, it doesn't. The, what what Nick's intentions were are meaningless. And, and Nick has got the good a good sense and intelligence to say, yeah, that's right. That's what it is. So <laughs> for you, that's what it is. Who, who was he to argue? And I, I think with with Bob Fosse, like I don't think it's necessary to think that you know that you need to access the mind of Bob Fosse through this. However, that since it's told with such brutal honesty and there's there's lines in it where you think someone's actually said this someone's someone's actually said this <laughs> right. and he's and and, and what's well, there's, there's this spectacular moment and i might say a kind of, i'm not too sure if i can say this particular word or not there's a moment in the film where um where uh, Bob, um, where, uh, where Joe Gideon, his his character, has, has got this girlfriend, and um, she's caught him um, having sex with one of his dancers, and they're having a conversation. She's she's sitting on a bed, and he's he's basically talking to her as to whether she should not go away on this on this tour, and she's teasing him into submission by saying that she's um, she's going to be starring opposite this very very handsome dancer. And Joe Gideon is as a he's a short guy, and he's he's kind of you know, and he's and he's a lot older than this this this, this girlfriend he's got. Um, and uh, and he he's really trying to be as level headed as he can, and he's trying to say to her, "Look, yeah, you should go because I am just not a good person, and if you want to stay with me, that's great, but I am just not a good person." And she she says that. She knows he's generous. He he gives her gifts. He gives her everything. He gives her this, his time. She just wishes he wasn't so generous with his cock. <laughs> and it's one of those moments that you think, someone's actually said that. 
And he's remembered it. And what's, right, that's and what's an more, what's, what's more, he then leaves the room and says, wow, I should get that in the film somewhere. Because you're, you're thinking right. <laughs> what he's thinking and, he's, and the timing that he gets the, the, the actor to say it is because all the filmmakers in the room are thinking, wow, yeah, I'd, I'd stick that. And he, he delivers that little line, a little, that little cap on the end. He gives it to you just at the right moment. So there's all these little there's all these little kind of moments in the film that you can trace back to his um, um, his experience as a as a choreographer and as a director and he was a reprobate he really was I mean he was a drinking drug taking womanizing nightmare that everyone was in love with and essentially that's what the film was about and and his he knows it's going to kill him and so he decides to get Jessica Lang to play death. That's, that's just the <laughs> pinnacle of vanity to do that. But, he, but it's so blatant, he just does See, it. That's, who's going to play death? Jessica Lang, the most beautiful woman in Hollywood. And she's going to smile <laughs> yeah. the whole time. And they we're going to name her Angel. Angel. <laughs> Angelique. <laughs> right? right? Angelique. It's just, it, it's diabolical. The, the thing, you, you know, I mean, to your point, I, and I, I absolutely see it, but I'm one of those bastards who actually believes that context is everything. And, uh, and that even if, uh, th- that there is a certain gift, particularly in this film, that comes from knowing the background of the film. And there are some films where there is no gift of that context, right? You just, like you say, the, the filmmaker might as well be dead and buried by the time you actually watch the movie. But this film, I think, is made... It's made better by having an understanding of Bob Fosse and, and the fact that this sort of not on, only is it autobiographical, but it's it's almost contemporary to the autobiography. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he's just he's it is an amazing story and it is made more amazing when you know what he went through to do it. Yeah, there's no there's no doubt that when you learn the context, it colors your um, your viewpoint of the, of the film you've seen. But they um, they don't really need it doesn't need to be there. I mean, it's it's. I, I, I'm very interested in Bob Fosse's life, and I've read a lot about his life, and I've I've seen all of his films multiple sure. times. Not quite as many times as I've seen all that jazz, and and he is a. I mean, Sweet Charity is the first film is just amazing, and this is also the guy. Bob Fosse has very very unlikely fans. Um, Michael Jackson, his entire dance career was a basic lame imitation of. Of, of Bob Fosse, and if you think that's an, an exaggeration, just watch um, any clips on YouTube that you can see about the Little Prince, and watch Bob Fosse's dance moves in the Little Prince, and then look at, at Michael Jackson's career immediately afterwards. And Michael Jackson imitated a scene in a film about a young about a young boy being seduced by a devil man. Now, if that makes any sense to you at all in the context of, um, of Michael Jackson's life. <laughs> That's pretty. It's pretty amazing, and, but you can't. You cannot look at Michael Jackson's dance uh, uh, dance moves and not see Bob Fosse in them. And Bob Fosse is not a credited right. guy to that. But you know, they, they, but Michael Jackson is essentially is a plagiarizing Bob Fosse. But what you can see a lot, which I, I, I definitely agree with you. And I don't know dance. Like I, I really enjoy musicals. I'm opposite of you. Uh, You're an incredible I, dancer. I. I, I <laughs> That is something that is completely not true. Uh, I, 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 I love musicals, but like dance, I find really hard to sit through. Like if I go to a show that's just like a dance show, like I struggle with that. I, I need a story. I need something else happening with that. But when I watch what Bob Fosse does with his dancers in his shows, like I see movements, the, just the way that, that people move and the shapes that they put themselves in and everything, I find really fascinating. And that's something that 
um, that that draws me in more to what Bob Fosse is doing with the dance in his stuff. And I definitely can see that uh, in Michael Jackson because Michael Jackson was somebody who had a lot of like iconic positions that he would end up in, which which he stole from Bob Fosse. Which yeah, I, well I'm t- yeah absolutely there is that definitely that through line, and you could even take it to like a lot of the modern dance that you see in music videos and stuff. I, I think there's definitely a, a path that people have taken. I mean, you see what Bob Fosse did in the erotica scene in this film, um, which is just a brilliant way to to deconstruct what is essentially kind of a, a very average uh, musical moment when they sing the uh, yeah. Take Off With Me song. And then it turns into that erotica thing. And it's like, wow, there's so much more now that they've just done this with that song. And then you take what the dancing and everything in there and you can transfer that just through Michael Jackson all the way to just everything that has gone on since. It's it's really a brilliant path that I think Fosse carved for the dancing world as as he kind of uh, left this world and, and just made all of that available to everybody after him. In, in the middle of the erotica scene, there is a, a, a part where um, the promoter turns to uh, its cohort, the lawyer, I think, and says, oh, no. There goes the children's audience, and it's and it's in the middle yeah. of this absolutely fantastic spectacle. But you know, their perspective is one purely of commerce, and it's it's just so funny. Commerce like, or or just straight up banality. Like the lines that he has un- under that just under the context of this incredible dance scene is are things like oh, they're taking yeah. their clothes off, yeah. which is just like so <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> I think he became one of my favorite characters in the movie. Like all the stuff that he has, the scenes with John Lithgow, uh, as like their conversations, <laughs> like there's just the most brilliant like subtext underneath, which is just like the sleaziest like uh, of Hollywood business, yeah. like happening <laughs> with the two of them every time they converse. When the fan comes up to Lithgow and, and when, when he's just about to take over the project and says, I love your work. I'm so sorry our last film was a flop. I was just going to say that line that encapsulates the entire narrative of the movie, right? Uh, It's really delightful. I, I actually, I mean, this I have not seen it as many times as uh, it sounds like either of you uh, clearly, but I, I struggle with the last half hour because it is so, so raw, right? And, and it's amazing to me that I can say it's raw and it's full of sort of the heaviest, number of song and dance numbers but they are really hard to watch like going through the the surgery going through the you know that making the surgery a song and dance uh is is it was a real struggle for me to to balance those two things there's a um and get when joy he gets out of, out of the surgery and he's in recovery and he breaks out of the recovery area and then and he gets into the into the basement of the hotel and he finds this old black janitor and they do this a bit of soft shoe together and he basically and it's like it's so touching because he just all he wants to do is to be around someone who just appreciates um, what he does. And when the when the porters take him away, his response to one of the porters is, "What don't you like musical comedy?" And it's about it's it's not it's a reference to <laughs> us in the film because he's putting us through this utterly horrible situation where this guy is like bleeding all over the hospital walls and kind of is, you know he's in the process of dying. And he's challenging us with that statement. You're like, you know, don't you like what you're seeing? What's wrong? <laughs> Isn't this funny? <laughs> exactly. That's a great point. He's yeah, he does it right all the way through me. the film. So it's, it's always like he doesn't yeah. quite break the fourth wall. He just kind of presses up against it and brings you into a position where, um, you know, you 
feel as though he's talking to you, but he's not really. He's being oblique about it. And I think that's one of the skills of the film. He's, he's very good at um, – he's, he's an arch manipulator. I think that's really important characteristic for directors. And it's one of the things which I find really um, intriguing about good directors. I was told this story once about um, uh, um, Alfred Hitchcock. If he would go to meetings and he'd be with someone and they would like be heading towards an elevator and Hitchcock would inexplicably cut into the middle of a very gruesome story. And they would speak quite loudly and he would get into the elevator, tell the story, and then on the floor he wanted to be at, the doors would open and he would leave, still talk, talking the story, but not to the point of, of uh, not to the pivotal point of the story. He would leave the elevator with everyone else enthralled in the, um, in the, um, in the elevator, not getting to the pivotal point. And he would walk out of the elevator and then cut back straight into what he was talking about. He just did this purely to manipulate his audience. And this audience was six people in an elevator going three floors. And he did it. He almost like a honed skill of knowing how to pick someone up at the right point in the story and take them to the point where they really want the answer and then not giving it to them. Knowing how to do that in that really quite nasty Machiavellian kind of way is a skill that you need to be a good, dire- a good director. You need to know how to manipulate people. And where, where um, all that jazz is so fantastic for me is it's so deeply manipulative of, of everything. It's, it's a guy about, it's a story about someone who has manipulated everyone in his life, all the people who love him, his daughter, his mistress, his wife, his friends. He's manipulating all of them and they still love him and he's still going to die and he can't do anything about it at all. <laughs> It's the bleakest story ever, and I'd really. Well, it's the the bleakest story ever, full of uh, you know. It's got these moments the 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 moment when Kate and uh, Michelle do their song and dance in the condo is absolutely yeah. a highlight of the movie for me. I mean, their their you know their dance is is full of such joy, and and as a reminder of the kind of joy that he at at one point you know allowed himself to experience yeah. uh it's a beacon yeah I, it's a great scene well and and the film is really just a celebration of of this type of storytelling that you get i mean it, you know bob fossey has has a magical gift the way that he kind of puts this really dark story forward with with uh humor and and sarcasm and wit and everything uh, but i think you know looking at i mean he wrote this with robert allen arthur they did a great job of kind of pulling some elements from bob fossey's life but not making a complete biopic i think they do a really good job of kind of dancing that line you know there's elements of kind of his directing lenny at the same time he was uh uh the the directing the film lenny while at the same time directing the play chicago i believe that's the period in his yeah. life where he actually had the heart attack and you get little bits of that here with kind of him making that kind of Lenny-ish film that he's that he keeps jumping and working in. And I love that here is this character, that that stand-up character who's talking about death and always introducing us to these five this five-step process: anger, denial, bargaining, depression, acceptance. Which is and, the Elizabeth from the Elizabeth Kubler Ross book, but that's not the order this the um the stages are in. Right. They actually misquote it in the film deliberately, it's in the wrong order. 
Interesting. So, but but I think that's so interesting that even even regardless of the order, the fact that he ties that in here and brings that in as an element in his story about his you know brush with death, basically, mm. I, I find that so interesting. And 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 working with the editor that he worked with, I think we have to talk a little bit about Alan Heim and just the the way that this film was cut together. It really is is one of the reasons that I find it such a compelling film because the, the the cutting back and forth throughout this film, whether it's cutting from uh, the way that it cuts from scene to scene or within a scene, the way that dances are cut together, the way that, that, that we get those almost breaking the fourth wall cuts to him as he's talking with Angelique and kind of that, you know, that, uh, that, um, uh, uh, place that's just kind of it's almost like an amalgam this dark amalgam of all the elements of his life right where they're sitting uh, it's just it's fascinating the way the film is cut together it is um, I have stalked Alan Heim um, I was in I was in <laughs> Poland at um, Camera does he know oh, that oh yeah he knows it flat out I told him um, I was at Camera Mars and um, one year and he was there and um, I thought how can I have a sustained conversation with Alan Heim so I made sure I was sitting next to him on the plane back to London. <laughs> talked to him the whole time. It, it, it is, he was charmed and happy to talk about it. You know, I, I think I, I've, I have gone out of my way to meet many, many people who've worked on that movie. And, and, uh, and Anne Rankin, I, 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 I cornered her. She was on a job that I did. And, um, and it was, uh, it's Alan Heim's um, uh, cutting of this film. And we'll get to that when we talk about the scene later on. Um, he is a spectacular film editor um, that uh, displays amazing sense of pace in this film. There are scenes where there's so many little tiny cuts and the dancing is allowed to kind of play out in, um, in a way which isn't too cutty, but he, he uses very fast editing to emphasize certain moments in the, in the floats. Um, so much of music video editing um, I, I see and I think it's just too glitzy and too much going on and a lot of music video editors should look at what Alan Heim did and and all that jazz and understand that there is a, there is a better way of cutting there's a better way of getting flow in a in a story than to just throw thousands of cuts at something I mean, it's, a, it's such a beautifully cut movie it's amazing and you see he's in the movie as well there's a scene in the film where they're cutting the um the uh, the um, film about the stand-up and they're they're in the editing suite and there's Alan Heim in front of a moviola pulling stuff out yeah, it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's, yeah, it's it's spectacular. And he did uh, he did a few films. I think he did Lenny, this, and Star Eighty with uh, uh, with Fosse. So he he worked with him a, a number of times. Yeah, he did. Um, he did Star Eighty. He did all that jazz. He did. I don't think you know he did Lenny. Um, I didn't do the. I didn't do um, Cabaret or um, or uh, Sweet Charity. Oh, but he did do the TV uh, the TV show Liza with a Z. Uh, with uh, with him and Liza, yeah. So he did he did work on that. So he did, yeah. And another of the our favorite films on this show, uh, Network. So he's been yeah. uh, he's been cutting lots of great stuff. Yeah. And a film which uh, I think every single person who watches Fox News should perhaps perhaps watch again now. <laughs> You're messing with the primary forces of nature, Mister Peel, <laughs> and I will not have it. Isn't that fantastic? That shot down the, down the table, and when he's got his hands up, it's like it's just superb. Oh, legendary! Yeah, Those oh, lights, could, uh, incredible. Who could make Beatty look like a god? <laughs> That's <was> fantastic. <laughs> oh, 
Uh, anyhow, and we stuff. haven't we haven't actually said that we haven't uttered the words the great Roy Scheider, and and we have not a- actually uh, done a series on Roy Scheider, but we have talked about it a lot, particularly Roy Scheider in the seventies. Uh, he is before the plastic surgery. <laughs> It, that goes right. there, get weird. Is that, is, does that actually define the the break well, after uh, for Roy? He, well, after for the plastic surgery kicked in, I think he just like it just became a bit weird. But you know, it's it's completely forgivable for Jaws and um and all that jazz. We actually we we're uh, such fans of his because uh, you know he did so so many great movies in the seventies that uh, we're like you know we created this list over on our website where it's like Roy Scheider ruled the seventies because I mean if you look at his career in the seventies I mean he was you know starting in Clute and and going all the way through this. Uh, you know, he had such a fantastic, fantastic uh, career in the 70s that that really, I think, defined what uh, a 70s actor really was doing. I mean, I just I really found everything that he did just engrossing. Clute, French Connection, uh, Seven Ups is Marathon fantastic. Man. Jaws, Marathon Man, Marathon Sorcerer. Man, right. uh, maybe not Jaws 2 so much. What's wrong with Jaws 2? Last Embrace. I, I, <laughs> no, it's it's good. It's just not Jaws, but Last Embrace, all that jazz. Uh, Everybody knows the real Jaws is Jaws 3D. Yeah. So <laughs> that's exactly. Uh, but, but I got to take it all the way up to eighty three with Blue Thunder. That is a very very guilty pleasure of mine. I adore that's, Blue yeah, Thunder. that's an extremely guilty pleasure. Yeah, there you go. Hey, you shut your mouth, <laughs> Sadler. You shut it. Everyone's got one. Come that on. was a dig. I almost took it as a compliment, and I now I know that was a dig. Do you know what mine is at the moment? What John Wick? Uh, you don't oh. have to be guilty about that. No, I, my, my wife hates the fact that I like John Wick. Hates it. it, it, it <laughs> I, people will come around and they say, "Hey, watch me watch." I say, "Well, if we get stuck, we could watch John Wick." And she'll say, "We're not watching that," and she'll leave the room. Oh. <sighs> we just talked about Point Break on the show, and that's, yeah, Point yeah, Break. Yeah. yeah, we did talk about Point Break. So yeah, uh, we're fans. Anyhow. We're fans of Keanu and his action stuff. He's good. He, <laughs> he carries the action well. He does. <laughs> I need to watch Blue Thunder again. Actually, I haven't seen it in quite some time. Worth it. I'll, yeah, I'll, on, on your recommendation, I'll dig it, dig it up again. I we, we'll have to have you back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so anyway, Roy Scheider, fantastic uh, as in this part, and and I think it's it's one of those pieces where, um, I, you know, he's. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I get a sense of who Roy Scheider is in these other movies, you know, Frank Ligurian and Buddy Russo and include and, and French Connection. But uh, in, in this movie, I'm, I get a sense that he is, um, I, I should say, more invested in the identity of this character of Joe than in many of these other films that, that are sort of replaceable, swappable. This this film is uniquely, uniquely Scheider for me. I think any man, any actor being asked to play this role has to confront mm. some of the nastier, darker sides of um, of a society that's dominated by um, the wilds of men, particularly in the 1970s. Um, yeah. you, you're being forced to confront elements of yourself which are distasteful. And then this, it's and what Fosse manages to do is he manages to take this most, uh, most some of those distasteful characteristics and make them funny and make you empathize. But it's still a little distasteful, and he he pulls it off quite well. You know, he's he manages to show his frailty, but at the at the same time, he's you know a drug taking, egomaniacal nightmare. Um, and he's he, he's kind of apologizing. There's this great scene where he um, where he comes out of the theater, and um, he's just told a lie to his daughter that he can't hang out with her because he's about to go and shag a dancer that is waiting for him at his apartment, um, and um, and 
he gets to the doors of the theatre, he throws his arms down, and he, you can see he look at the ground, and in his head he says, "Oh, I am such a terrible father." And then it cuts to um to the sequ- um, to a, a sequence where he, he's discussing um uh, his life with um with with death with um with uh, Jessica Lang, and he says, "I drink too much." Um, I, you know, I take drugs. I sleep with too many women. I'm, uh, it's such a turnoff, right? And he looks at death. And you're expecting this woman to say, yeah, that's a real big turnoff. And she just looks at him and says, no, just the opposite. And you think, no, this, she's saying that because she's death. She's, she, she, she's attra- she is necessarily attracted to everything which is bad about it, everything. And it's a, it's kind of you know I think as a as a man particularly in the seventies you, you if you could confront all of the um, the negative parts of your personality he was getting um, uh, shyder to do that and he does that with charm and it makes you empathise with him it's very it's a very hard thing to do I think it's very ugly really he's it's a really ugly character. He, he really is. And that's, I think, that might be why uh, some critics really had a hard time when this came out uh, and just said, oh, it's just a, you know, this is a film where, you know, he's just, uh, you know, promoting himself. It's, it's you know, all this self-love and it's just, you know, pulling all this darkness out. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I felt like they may have missed it or maybe they just knew too much about Bob Fosse. I don't know. But I, I felt like there was so much more going on with this. I mean, this was a film about a person who's really honest. Like I was I, knowing more about Bob Fosse as I kind of learned about him in the process of making this. I'm like, I, I, I am so like almost horrified at the amount of honesty that this man has and is willing to kind of, you know, throw it all out there for everybody to look at. I mean, it's, it's really uh, brave and uh, I don't know. I just, I was just mind blown and, and very impressed with all of that when I, uh, when, when I learned more about him. In the, in the landscape of filmmaking, there's, um, if you look at the films that were made in the 1970s and they're, they're very male based films, very male based stories. And all that jazz presents itself as a, as a quite a male film, but really all of the main important characters in the film were all women, his daughter, his mistress, the wife, death, that these are the big themes that he wants to address and he loves all of them and we are compelled to understand his world through the negligence he has to these women um, and, and they're necessarily cast as being righteous because you know the, the the wife loves him and knows he's a scumbag but she knows he's talented and knows he's got a course to take and the, the daughter knows he is he, he, she knows that, that he's lying she knows that um, yeah, but all of these these are um, it's the, you know I've heard um, people say that well that jazz is quite a misogynistic film and um, I don't think it is I think it's actually one of the few films that I've I've seen that um, that where um, where a man honestly portrays the fact that um, that he is the the the, the less of the better of, of the two sexes in terms of which is better he, in fact he explicitly states that in the film that he really would prefer to be a woman. He, you know, he he thinks of he holds women very, very highly. He's just um, completely incapable of containing his libido or any of his other desires. You know that the repetitive thing of him standing in front of the mirror in the morning, taking the dexedrine, listening to the um to um to um is it uh, is it uh, Strauss, isn't it? He listens to I know what it goes in my head. Oh sure, this repetitive thing in his life about you know this these indulgences that are that are going to send him off the edge. But the only redemptive pieces in his life are the women in his life. 
there's only redemption. And the final redemption is death herself. It, I, I think on that note, we should we should talk about our uh, the deep scene dive. Uh, we asked you to to think about a scene that that is uh, particularly exemplifies. Uh, uh, the this this film, if you were to boil it down to one set of sort of visuals and audio, and I think this is this position or this the the where this scene uh, exists in the film, uh, just about halfway through, uh, I I think really, um, you know, you can you you see the edge. We're we're walking up to the edge with him uh, in this scene. Uh, the the scene itself is it starts right about an hour and three minutes uh, in. Uh, do you want to uh, introduce us to the scene and why you? Picked it. So they're doing a table read, and that the um, so Joe Gideon is um, um, is um, he's got his script. He's going to he's got all the actors together the first time, and he's he's a little bit nervous, and he, he says to everyone looking, we're just going to read this through, and um, and we're going to see what we've got, and it's all cast, and the actors start reading, and it the the first thing you realize is that the the script is really quite corny, and um, but they start reading, and and the, on the, after the first line or two, everyone starts laughing, and. You, the, the, the camera pans around all the people in the room and everyone's very happy with themselves and the, the sound just drops away of the laughter and the actors reading. So the only thing you're left with is the foley of Joe Gideon's breath and what he's doing in his immediate vicinity, like he's scratching on a piece of paper and he's um, he, he can just he, he puts his hand on his chest and you can hear his, that, that kind of his hand rubbing up against his shirt. And it closes down. So even though you're seeing everybody, I mean, you're being told the story visually of everyone's really enjoying this. It's really fantastic. And everyone's like looking at Joe and shaking like, and nodding. And, and, and he is just completely disassociated from it altogether. Now, um, as a cinematographer, when you get shown scripts, you, the first, your first thought is, how can I make this work visually? But this doesn't need that. It needs the cinematography just to continue the same line, and it's done in tune with the with the um, with the emphasis on sound. And so uh, Giuseppe Ritorno, consummate cinematographer who worked a lot with um, with uh, Fellini and a bunch of other people, amazing cinematographer, had the good foresight to keep rather than going close for certain details, he pulled wide and let the sound emphasize the moments that you needed to look at. There's a point where the camera, you see Joe Gideon from the back, he's sitting on a chair, he's got a pencil in his hand, and he's tapping the pencil in his hand, and you hear the tapping, and he breaks the pencil and drops it on the ground, and all you hear, and then you hear the sound of the, of the pencils hitting the ground, and it's held in one wide shot. And you look at it and you're so focused on this action that you stop looking at everybody else and just at the pencil. And it's, a, it's not the photography that's doing that. It's the, the photography is allowing the sound to focus you on what you should be seeing. And the difference between cinema and television, as it used to be, is that television was in a four-by-three box and you, you sat a certain distance from it and your eyes would never deviate. You would look at this four-by-three box. And everything took place in that frame. But when you were at the cinema, you had to look around. Your eyes had to look all over the screen. And um, there's a, there was a massive difference at that point between cinema and filmmaking in terms of, of what, you, what your expectations were as a cinematographer in terms of guiding people's perception. And in that moment, Giuseppe Ritorno, as, as one of the, the, simply the finest cinematographers has ever worked, um, gives... Uh, an approach to the photography that allows the sound 
to carry through on that scene and give you a, a meaning that um, that simply wouldn't be there if those two elements weren't playing against each other. And there's virtually no dialogue, but you get the entire story out of out of this blend of foley special um, um, uh, sound effects and um, and uh, and these visuals, which really are working at counterpoint to the story. There's a moment in there that, uh, for some reason, it's the image that always sticks with me. It's when uh, Joe gets up and he walks over to, I, I'm not sure if it's scaffolding or something that's kind of up against the back wall, and he kind of rests his hand behind him on the, on the bar of the scaffolding. And this is when all this yeah, the sound is it. all dropped out, except his thumb like just starts moving across it, scratches it. And you just get that sound just emphasizing. And it just, it just, I don't know. It was, it was so, it hit me so strongly. Just the, it was framed pretty wide. And that was kind of off to one side as you're kind of looking at everything else happening, but you're really drawn into watching his finger scratching. And, uh, and obviously, I mean, the, the whole emphasis of the scene is this is this point in his life where he's kind of hitting this, this critical place where all of a sudden he's going to have this heart attack and end up in the hospital. Um, but it, it's just the moment of this person kind of focusing on these details and the way that that emphasis hit me in that particular shot was, uh, it, I don't know, it just, it was like, that's the little things that he's paying attention to. It's like, that's it. That's what he's paying attention to, the scratching of the metal. But it it just, it, I don't know, there was something really powerful in the, in the smallness of that detail. Well, Bob Fosse was famous for that in his choreography. He would like have all of the dancers stop and then he would have one person up front making a small hand gesture. So the the audience is forced to look at that and nothing else. And then it would take off again. But you know, he has his Bob Fosse has these kind of little quirks about how he does um, how he does things, and they're about um, changing focus and emphasis. Whereas a lot of choreographers are all about everything moving and it all's going the entire time, and it's like a it's like a, um, a like a massive salad of stuff that's always working. Um, Bob Fosse would, was really good at um, pulling the emphasis in and then pushing the emphasis back out and forcing you to concentrate in different in different ways. And it, it sticks out of the movie. Like he has these really interesting approaches that um, you just don't see emulated in quite the same way. I mean, a lot of people try and rip Fosse off um, and fail. I mean, uh, Chicago, the movie, wanted I wanted to go and kill people <laughs> after that. So it's like, I was just like, it was just like, a, it was just offensive to me. And and I because I'm not into that genre. I'm into I'm into Bob Fosse's style of doing things. I'm not into um, the glitz and glamour of you know of a vaudeville or kind of a, a, a musical Broadway kind of thing. And I think Bob Fosse, had he seen Chicago, would have been sucking air through his teeth. You know, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have liked it too much. <laughs> <laughs> this uh, this scene in particular for me, I think, represents that the uh, you know the balance. You said he's you know he's walking up to the edge uh, earlier, and that that for me is this scene because first he's made us think. The scene immediately before it is the scene with the the uh, the dancing the girls uh, in in the apartment. The scene of great joy, and you're up here, right? You're emotionally bought into this this hope, and then we move into this this sequence where the sound drops out, and you realize that in fact there is no hope. And this is this is Joe completely dissociated from his world, and and that is there there is, it is the void, the vacuum, the sucking vacuum of hopelessness, uh, and that pivot I, I think is uh, it, it, it's a it, it's a trick that that serves 
uh, it, it, man, it, I don't I don't know what the word is to describe it. It's it is the the train wreck you can't look away from, right? It's this guy that you you hope that you could you could sort of be the guy that you hope you could who could watch this woman and the daughter, uh, and and exist in the love for that, and then fall completely through the floor. Uh, it, there's there's another element to this that is that is is part of how that that works is that you've got these two stories you've got the stories you're you're very eloquently describing is that that you know about his personal character but this is there's another element to it which is this art this is other artistic realm which is a lot of people involved in um in creating things which are complex find that the organization and thinking about it is where it all happens actually getting to do it is crushingly boring Mm-hmm. So you know the the creation of the erotica scene and the anxiety involved in that is the pinnacle of his happiness because it's he's created it and it's it's great work. But now he has to deliver on this to an audience, and that part of the process is 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 tedious to him. So and it's a form of and it's a form of death in itself. So it actually sticks the two things together. I mean, this is this is something that I've I've heard a lot of DPs and directors say before: is the planning of the film and the thinking the, about the ideas and getting it to work is really where it all lives. Actually executing it and making it can be crushing because all you do get do from that point on is you take the um, the limitless aspect of your um, of your talents and abilities and, and your vision and now you have to face with all the compromises of actually making it happen. And it's not a pleasant process. Filmmaking, it, it to me is much much more pleasant in planning than it is in it, it is in execution and i really love being on set but it's the thinking about it beforehand that it really that it really does it for me isn't that a funny thing too i think that's a really great note but when he actually walks out into the hallway and says to the uh, you know to the team sitting out there and to paul who's you know sitting there waiting to see what he has done with his with this ridiculous song uh, he he actually doesn't i i found myself reflecting he doesn't deliver this line he uh, joke walks out and he says uh, it's a little different. He doesn't deliver that line with any of the sort of anxiety or nervousness that comes with taking someone's work and changing it. And you're about to show him. He he presents it like he's bored. Wait, he also, then he goes <laughs> to the toilet and throws up. Right. Because <laughs> like, you know, it's he's uh, in, in that moment. He's like he's so he, if, if there's a moment when he's going to get judged and he'll take it to heart, it's then. What, yeah. what the audience think, you know, like he he, he, he says he says this. He's like, you know, what, what are the audience? What are the audience going to think? He doesn't really care that much. Yeah. He cares if it's he cares if it's a flop, but he he cares about impressing the people that who care about him. And it's, it's that's why the strength that when when he it finishes the um the the whole erotica sequence and the lights go up and he goes to his wife and says, oh, I don't think they like it. And she says, well, I loved it. I think it's the best work you've done in your life, you son of a bitch, and storms off. Because yeah. she, she, can't, she can't bear the fact that she's, one, still in love with him. Two, he's really talented. And three, he just he seems to be getting creatively better all the time. It's, it's, she wants him to fail at some level, and it, it just he won't. And the problem um, is he's failing on the wrong level, right? He's yeah. deteriorating physically and emotionally, but creatively he's... Having, yeah. doing some of the best work of his life exactly but, but even with even with his movie that he's doing which is you know he's like as he's talking to the producer he's just like oh i'm not even going to go to the screening you go apologize tell them it's just a rough cut all this sort of stuff and then you know the it comes out and they're just like oh everybody loves it lines around the block all that sort of yeah. stuff so it's it's yeah it's that it's that way that he has to sell it to himself at that point yeah right I mean, this is the curse of riches right how can you feel bad for a guy who's having nothing but for, but success 
you yeah. son of a bitch, you know. One of the worst things you can do is go and see a, um, a film made by someone you care about um, because you have yeah. to be armed with what I would call um, safety platitudes, um, <laughs> which involve the phrases, wow, you've really done it again, or you, right. uh, you really pulled that one out of the box. Things that are just like are abstract and don't really speak to like what you feel about the film because it's very hard to see product by someone who you admire and love and enjoy it. It's very tricky. It's it's better to you know you should never really hang out with your heroes too much because it's you're going to get disappointed. It is best to keep them at arm's length, and it's also with their work as well. I I had the um the misfortune of spending an evening with Adam Curtis, the documentarian, whose work as a documentarian I really, really love. And um, Adam is not a great human being. He is, he, is a, he is like his documentaries. He's complex and not particularly nice. And um, you know, that was fairly recent, and it was crushing to me because I thought that he would, be, yeah. he would have been a better, better person. He, sadly, he wasn't. That's why movie critics don't like to befriend the, the filmmakers because it's harder for them to talk critically about films if they're like, oh, well, I'm good friends with this particular person. Yeah, I mean, it's, you, you don't yeah. want that baggage. It's, it's, ba- it's right. bad That's enough hard. watching you know, films and, and trying to be critical about them without that baggage, I think. And I'm not a massive fan of lots of film reviewers either. As you know, I I, I, um, I had a very unfortunate conversation a few years back with someone who um, is a um, votes on the Golden Globes, and towards the end of the conversation, I had to pronounce that I really didn't think this person had a single clue as to what they were talking about. It was it was quite a, it was quite a disturbing <laughs> conversation. Strange strange things I, like you know. Um, she insisted that she would only this, this is like two years ago. She would only watch movies that were given to her on vhs and sh- and she had like a four by three tv and she would only watch them that way otherwise she just wouldn't watch oh them wow and she wanted it and she sits a certain distance from the tv that she wants to, so it's incredibly small and she had this kind of very kind of particular kind of approach to to her thinking so it's kind of strange <laughs> well that's sort of on you for associating <laughs> with people who are actually probably clueless maybe, maybe. <laughs> I, give, I give people the benefit of the doubt how stupid is that I should be more cynical. That's right. That's right. <laughs> there you go. More, more like Joe. <laughs> I don't think I want to be any more like Joe. Can you imagine? He's an aspirational figure. <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite, little, one of my favorite little lines of the film is that right at the beginning. There's this kind of big, big audition, and uh, these two um, dancers are dismissed, and they're, they're walking down the stairwell. And one of them says, "Screw him. He never cast me." And the other girl says, "I did screw him, and he still doesn't cast me." <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. And it's like you know, think that it's, it's funny, but it's also it is in the context of what's actually happening in the in the industry at the moment. It, it's the same issue, you know. There's there's a lot of predatory behaviour that gets fed into from from all sides, and it's it's glad that it, I'm glad that's changing. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's definitely. I mean, it's it's interesting because it's it's almost like. I mean, I don't want to say it's like a, a something of the time, um, but certainly there was it, it, times have changed. Um, but I think that speaks to this film is that this film is certainly of its era, but in no way do I find this film dated at all. Like, it's not like I watch this film and go, oh, God, it's so 70s. I, I find it. It takes place in the 70s. But, man, this film is is just it's so um, just everything in it feels so present still. And that, I think, is a magic that Bob Fosse has the way that I agree. I, mean, I, I really think that um, that people should be watching this film in this era um, to, to look at the warning signs that were presented to us 
all of this time ago. This this kind of behavior was very bad behavior. And Bob Fosse was telling you in throughout the entire film that this was very bad behavior. And that the only redemptive characters in these films were these women who had a, a moral position and wanted to be respected and wanted to be loved and and were willing to reciprocate. And um, and it, it, it gives you a, a moral story that's important today in the context of what's happening now. And you can show this film without making any changes at all to the, the flow of the story and still get that message. But Joe is, um, is a representative of... Of, uh, of an era and of a lifestyle and um, of a, a paternalistic attitude towards um, towards the industry that is in that as um, that he paints as being very very bad and um, and it's and, and at the time Bob um, the, uh, all that jazz got a lot of flack for that you know people saying oh he's moralizing and you know he doesn't really understand what's, but he was had his finger on the pulse he was holding up a mirror he was holding up a mirror yeah and and I think that's I it, it in that regard it's all that much more surprising yeah. that this movie even got made. Well, and, and what's great is how people have taken this film and and used it to kind of use it as an influence. I already talked about like the Michael Jacksons and all the dancing and stuff. But I mean, look at people like Darren Aronofsky and Requiem for a Dream and just the way that he's cutting the montages together in that film. I mean, it's very reminiscent of what Bob Fosse yeah. was doing back in 1979. It, it, it speaks so strongly to the power of cinema and that Bob Fosse had tapped so strongly into it back then i mean it's 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 really quite a feat that he accomplished here the opening sequence which is cut to a uh, um a george benson track mm-hmm. um, oh, yeah. it's just alan himes editing on that is just fantastic and it's you thinking that they're they're cutting and, and with, with what we see is now is extremely rudimentary equipment and 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 bound by some very very heavy physical restraints as to what you could what was you could do um, in terms of um, uh, and, uh, editing and um, and all of the little mismatches that you see in that scene that you could easily easily fix in Adobe Premiere that you know a twelve year old could do it. Yet they were they were battling up against these restraints that um, the, in technology that were formidable. Um, but it's an amazingly well cut piece. Just, just uh, I, I play, I play that for people over and over and over again. If, like, if it, if we got like twenty minutes and we're waiting for something to happen, I'll just play that scene. It's just an amazing bit of editing and cinematography. Oh, yeah. but, uh, and, and story to cut down what Fosse, uh, you know, what his life is at its most banal, uh, and and to actually make it feel like it is both full of energy. Uh, you know, in terms of moving the narrative forward and letting us see what his life looks like, but to also do it in a way that actually demonstrates this is this is terrible. This is a terrible way to cast. This is a terrible way to, uh, you know, to to have to live your life and judge people, and also demonstrate how Joe can do it with kindness and love and generosity. Like you watch him in his little handshakes as he moves people on. He's not a terrible person in yeah. this context. Yeah, he's when he's when he's lining up the dancers, and he comes across yeah. one dancer, and he says, uh, "What shows have you been in?" And she says, "Oh, well, I was in the Wizard of Oz." And she um, uh, and uh, um, he says, "Who directed that?" He says, "You did, Mister Fussy." Oh, you, yeah. you, 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 you did, Mister Gideon. <laughs> yeah, and she's like, "Just Mister Gideon." Just, just see, that's how you hunt. get a part. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it's a fantastic scene. And then going back to the erotica scene as well. Um, the people he casts in the erotica scene is this incredibly multicultural, diverse kind of collection of of gay people, straight people, black people, Asian people, white people, you end up with this really interesting multicultural um, 
reflection of what he wants to offer in this in this piece and he does it um and he, you can see the um the the care he's paying as a, as a um, as a not only as a choreographer and director but as a um, as in the character of the film the character wants to show the world in a better light he wants the world around him to be a better place um he he really only trusts the, the opinion of women um it, it, but even though it's just this terribly despicable character, he is, you know, in in the in the, uh, if you were to cast, if you were to create that character in in a in a modern film, you couldn't have actually represented him any better than he's being represented in and all that jazz. All right, we need to uh, let's let's move on to uh, award season. How did this film, uh, Andy? You've you documented how this film did at award season, yeah. Yeah, the film ended up with 10 wins and 14 other nominations. Um, at the Oscars alone, it had nine nominations. It won for, I believe, uh, four of them. It won for art direction and set decoration. It won for costume design. won for film editing, of course. And it won for um, best original music. Uh, and uh, then the ones that it lost, it lost best picture to Kramer versus Kramer, which we've talked about on this show. Um, I would uh, have to say I would pick all that jazz. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love Kramer versus Kramer. It's a powerful film, but uh, it's not all that jazz. Um, Roy Scheider, the the man who represents the 70s better than any other actor, uh, he lost best actor to Dustin Hoffman for Kramer versus Kramer. Uh, Bob Fosse lost uh, Best Director to Robert Benton for Kramer vs. Kramer. Best Original Screenplay, um, they lost to Breaking Away. Best Cinematography lost to Apocalypse Now. That might be the one I agree with. I think that uh, as much as I love the cinematography here, I might still side well, with Apocalypse it, Now. It, okay, it's like, like you cannot compete with Apocalypse Now. Just can't. Yes, it doesn't, ma- it doesn't matter if really Apocalypse tough. Now was competing with Dunkirk. It would win. <laughs> right, just it would win. I mean, you, you make you make Apocalypse Now compete with any movie, and I'm sorry, it would win. That was just that'd be it. It is. So it's, that's so we can't, we can't really include film. that one. It's hard though because the Oscars do. Yeah. So and that's that's the other trick with Best Picture. Is it Kramer versus Kramer or Apocalypse Now or all that jazz? Just throwing Apocalypse Now in makes it hard for me. It does. Well, it's it's it's. A, I forgot that Apocalypse Now was um was in a same a, year. To think that yeah. the, the thing that Apocalypse Now, all that jazz, and Kramer versus Kramer are, um, are running for Best Picture, and, and and Kramer versus Kramer wins. It's kind of it's stunning. It is, <laughs> and I like Kramer versus Kramer, but it's like in you know over Apocalypse Now, really. Meh. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. It's yeah. it's crazy to think that that happened. I mean, Breaking Away, Norma Ray, those are the other two uh, nominees. Uh, I think Norma Ray is a brilliant, brilliant piece of filmmaking that uh, Martin Ritt did. But uh, Breaking Away is my least favorite of the bunch. I don't really care for that one. Really? But, uh, apo- yeah, I don't. I oh, love man, that man, film. That just, uh, I, I just, I really couldn't connect with those guys. I just struggled with that uh, through the whole thing. I struggled with that film. I was big into cycling when I was in my teenage teenage years, and Breaking Away was like, you know, one of those films that it was just like I just loved it. It was like it was really, you know. Is that one that you saw at a younger age? Then, yeah, I, 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 I saw. It's it's funny because I saw um, all of those films when I was like fourteen, fifteen years old, and Breaking Away and all that jazz had a massive impact on me. I really liked Apocalypse Now, but. 
not as much as those other two films had an effect on me. See, I think Breaking Away is a film that might be one that you need to see at the right age to really click with. Because I just watched that like a month ago for the first time. And and I just was like way past that group of, of boys. And I just, I could not connect with them and i really struggled with it so i think i think breaking away is more like a ladybird movie i think it, i think ladybird is a great movie sam sam levy who shot ladybird is a good friend of mine um he did a marvelous job but i don't think it'll have legs as a film over time i think it's it'll um it will it's like um um oh uh i can't remember her name's on the tip of my tongue um who um um oh who was the uh, the uh, the um the actress apart um, uh Dark hair was in a, a hard candy. What's her name? Oh, Ellen Page. Ellen Page. She did that film Juno, which, yeah. um, which you know, I, I really liked. But I look back at it now, and it, it's dated so badly. It really is um, is a, it fit it fit for that moment. But I don't think it'll. I don't think time will be kind to it, and I don't think time is necessarily that kind to breaking away as a movie. But for me, it's locked into a certain period when you know I was really heavily into cycling, and that was kind of it locked in a time, but. It's one of those films I'm kind of worried about watching again because I think I'll hate it if I watch it. Watch it again. Don't watch it again. It's not yeah. worth it, man. Keep yeah. the memory. Yeah. <laughs> Keep the memory alive. Keep the memory alive. <laughs> Don't mess with it. <laughs> uh, uh, the other award that I was going to bring up, though, as far as awards that uh, that this film uh, garnered, there was a, a little thing back there in uh, 1979 called the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. It was apparently something that ran from 78 to 2006. It was an L.A.-based wow. group of film buffs and movie critics devoted to honoring the worst films of the year. And that year, they uh, decided to uh, to uh, nominate Max Wright as the worst supporting actor. Max Wright, of course, plays the film producer who is constantly worrying about all the uh, the trouble that Joe is causing with their budget. Um, I only re- I remember him from Alf. That is <laughs> my memory of Max Wright. <laughs> I don't remember him from anything else, but uh, uh, that and this film. It's so funny. But he did not win Worst Supporting Actor. It went to Ricky Schroeder for The Champ, which I think is unfair because he was a kid in that film. What's what, what's anyway. Max Wright's line? Um, um, God, he says, God made the world in seven days and didn't go into overtime once. <laughs> <laughs> That was his. That was his key line. That was his big line. And then oh, it is right. Line. It is better. You know, God, it is. Yeah, no, like he, he gets just. <laughs> he gets great lines. You know, and he is. Yeah. He, I think he's. I think Bob Fosse plays him as a caricature because I think that those that those kind of people do become caricatures of themselves. They just have to yeah. whinge about the money and the overages. That's what they do. Yeah. Well, the fact that they have Wallace Shawn in the background of this thing calculating away in the boardroom, I thought was also delightful. <laughs> I, just the, the cast is just amazing I, uh, in this movie. Anyway, uh, Andy, how to do at the box office? Well, by the time uh, Fosse finished, he'd spent $12 million to make all that jazz, which is $39.7 million in today's dollars. The movie had a holiday opening hitting theaters December 20th, 1979, where it opened opposite Roller Boogie and Cuba wow. to uh, two classics that I'm sure everybody remembers. <laughs> it landed at fourth place for opening weekend, landing behind those two, as well as Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was holding the top spot still here in its third week of release. Fosse's film went on to make $37.8 million at the box office, which is about $125.2 million in today's dollars. All told, it did well for itself, landing with an adjusted profit per finished minute of 695000 See, now, if it had made that kind of money today, we would have had a sequel to this movie. Yeah, all that jazz, too. <laughs> as long as there's more Ben Vereen. Joe baby. rides again. See, it would have been Ben, it would have been ben-
Ben Vereen. It's a prequel story about Ben Vereen. This is gold. Yeah. Somebody write this down. <laughs> right, gentlemen, I want to lay on you uh, an entertainer, a humanitarian, and my closest personal friend for the last 25 years. <laughs> and with that, ladies oh, and gentlemen, I think it is time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You will find our list of uh, movies, every movie we've talked about on this show. And you can add this film to your own stack rankings. Just swipe over in your show notes and hit uh, hit flickchart. It'll take you right there to this movie. And you can add it to your list and see where it stacks up against ours. All right, Andy, here we go. All right. First up, we have All That Jazz or The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the Swedish version. I'm going with All That Jazz. So how do I do this? You just pay. so this is what you have yeah. to do. This is the this is the frame of mind you need to be in. You are alone on a desert island. All you have is your uh, is a TV and these two discs. Yeah. Okay, and you just have to pick which one would you put on first. What's which? What do you like better? All that jazz every single time. Okay, let's just see because <laughs> I hate to I hate to you know break out the spoiler, but Apocalypse Now is actually in the list somewhere. You may run into this. So just say, okay, all that jazz. So all that jazz. Every sing, it's every single time. All I right. just, I just, I'm a sucker. I just got to go. And, and I'm loyal. <laughs> That's why I'm a loyal I love sucker. it. I love it. Uh, you're a loyal. All right. Okay. <laughs> all that jazz or live free or die hard. <laughs> it is all that jazz for me. All that jazz for me. I, I'm assuming all that jazz. Okay. All that jazz. <laughs> all that jazz or Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I'm going to say all that jazz. All that jazz, really? I'm a child yeah. of Khan. Don't say I it. I know you are, I, and I am it. too. I, I it's. I know you're going to say all that jazz. It doesn't matter. It's. I'm. I. I have already resigned myself to the position of of. You I, know, I would be. Third I meal. would. I would be happy okay. to give up half of the times I watched all that jazz to have never seen Star um, uh, Wrath of Khan. <laughs> How about that? Oh, oh, wow. How about that? How about, how about that's doubling down? How do you yeah, like that? How do you like that? This is my breaking away, man. Don't you take really? that away from me. <laughs> who was the guy? Was it Ricardo Montalban who played? All right. who, was the, who was the guy who played um, Khan? Montalban. Yeah, yeah. Ricardo, Ricardo Montalban. Montalban. You're right. You're right. Yeah. With his chest yeah. on. Great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That's fantastic. Yeah. All okay. right. Next up, we have. Fine. <laughs> next up, we have All That Jazz or Children of Men. Brilliant, brilliant film. I'm assuming you're going to yeah. say all that jazz again. I can't. I, I, I'm loyal. All right, Andy. He said, he said all the way to the top. Pete, you go first. I'm still thinking. I, I'm going to. I'm children of men on this one. I I can't believe it because I, I. Anyway, go ahead. I feel like I'm going to be all look, that jazz. Come on. on I'm, I'm, just, I'm putting a wedge between you guys. I feel really bad about it. <laughs> oh, this is where this, is the, this begins the downward spiral so of the Andy, next reel. Wrath of Khan and Children of Men over all that jazz. We have to have a private chat. <laughs> <laughs> all right, oh, what's wow. next? What's next? Embarrass me some more, Andy. All right, next up, we have all that jazz. Or oh, this is this is where it gets tough for me. The original Die Hard. <laughs> I have to go with Die Hard. No, here. how I do? It okay. was formative okay. for me. This came out at a very pinnacle point in my life, and it's, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant film. It's Die Hard. And we we love you anyway. I, I can. There, there, there's films you could say that could come close for me, like really close, but none of these so far. I wonder if it. Oh, do you have any more? 
on this this speaking of uh the uh the influences of Fosse and all that jazz we have all that jazz or requiem for a dream all that jazz see now i would expect you to be pushed around by requiem from for a dream here nick come on no not at all i, I think that requiem for a dream is a little i find darren aronofsky a great director but incredibly self-conscious um and um I, I don't. I don't find a lot of authenticity in um, in what in the films he makes. I find them very interesting and very visual, but I, I find they're a bit cold. Um, and uh, in the same way that I find Christopher Nolan, Nolan cold. Mm. That's we should, we, we should talk about Dunkirk at some point. Uh, we, we, if you want, if you want vitriol and bile <laughs> from me, you'll get bundles of that. Oh, wow. Movie. Uh, I I am actually uh, all that jazz on this one. Uh, I oh, well, I okay. am. I'm really torn on this one. I feel like I'm leaning toward Requiem for a Dream, but maybe it's the recency. I'm going to actually say all that jazz. So, The recency hallucination. I know. All that jazz or Mad Max Fury Road? Okay. If you just had Mad Max original, (laughs) I would have had, there would have been a moment of doubt (laughs) about my position. Fury Road, no. Wow. I mean, Fury Road's great. It's a really good film. It is, but it is. the first the first Mad Max was there was it spoke to um, there's there's two great Australian films I think that uh, paint a picture of uh, Australia as a country. Walk in um, Awake in Fright. Have you seen that? I haven't seen Awake in Fright by Ted Kotcheff, an American director, made a film about the Australian outback. It's astonishing. And the first Mad Max, it really speaks to what because I grew up in Australia. Yeah. It's really they, those films speak to what Australia is actually like as a country. And um, in so many ways, it's quite frightening. So I, it's, it's, I'm it's, trying it's to closest, internalize what you are saying here. It's the closest one that's come to all that jazz, but I have to say all that jazz. Andy? Uh, I, I feel like I'm going to say Fury Road, but I might say all that jazz. I, this is, I'm really torn on this one. I, I am Fury Road on this one. Oh, so it's all on me now. Yeah, it is. It is totally on you. Can you give me one good reason why Fury Road's better than all that jazz? I because, already told uh, you that last half hour broke me, man. I it's not a thing I get a lot of joy out of watching, it's, and and I, it's difficult. It's painful. Yeah. It's really painful. I, it's true. Yeah, too. I, uh, and that's yeah. I and that's what I fall to. I with, absolutely with all appreciate that jazz. It. I love what it is, uh, but if I'm sitting on a desert island with these two movies, I'm going to put on Fury Road first. Really, it's unra- truly it's unrankable. These are hit, these are hate crime films, right? You can't you can't <laughs> rationally compare these two movies, and so I recognize that I can love and appreciate it and not watch it first. I just can't believe I'm I'm, I'm getting you to to entertain the idea of defending yourself. I, mean, <laughs> I actually can't believe that either. <laughs> if anyone's being irrational here, it's me. <laughs> That's why we love doing this. What am I going to watch? A story about a guy who's kind of basically committing suicide on film very, very slowly? (laughs) Or Fury Road, a good feel-good movie about the apocalypse. I mean, of course, you know, if I've I've got beer, Fury Road's probably going to be it. But I can't possibly say that to you. It's got to be all that jazz. Right, and I'll cut this part for you, for your reputation's sake. What's it? Are we done? Please tell me we're done. I I had to go with uh, Mad, Mad Max Fury Road, and it really just boiled down to the joy of cinema and watching that just because it is a viscerally fun movie to watch. All that jazz is just one of my favorites. It's a brilliant film and I love, I love seeing it, but it is a harder film to watch. It's it's not quite Schindler's list level, but it is a hard film to watch for me. Yeah. So so I picked Mad Max Fury road and I apologize for that. I do feel guilty now. But uh, that did put all that jazz at number 15 on our flick chart, which is a fantastically 
a stellar spot considering we've talked about nearly 350 movies so far. So I oh, think wow. that I think that is a pretty good spot for this film to have landed. That there is, yeah, that's a that's a solid place. Uh, you you uh, speaking of Sam Levy, what which he was on the show? Like, well, what did he pick? He, uh, Fat City. He Fat, was Fat City. City. Where was Fat yeah. City on our list? Do you remember? I want to uh, make I want to make sure that you one up are you one up Levy not if you're high. friends with him. That's important to us. <laughs> I want to call him up because I feel <laughs> hey, like Levy. if we're going to drive a wedge between relationships here, this is turnabout right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna if I'm higher than him, I'm gonna text him straight away. <laughs> Fat <laughs> City is a great film, but it did, yeah. I don't think it even en- ended up in our in the top half of the films. It's it's a tougher it's a a much tougher film for both of us yeah. to to watch, but it is still a really strong film. I think I need, I need to watch Fat City again. In fact, I'm it's I, I think at a bit of a homework for you two guys. I think if you haven't seen Wake and Fright, it's a, oh yeah, it's, that's on the list. Yeah, that's really you should see that. That's an amazing an amazing film. It's truly frightening. It, it takes it takes a it it took an American to come to Australia to make a film that was truly about what Australia was like because I think he hated it and was horrified. <laughs> <laughs> and his daughter is a very good friend of mine, Kate Kotcher. Um, I, I never got to the bottom of it with her. I never we never never got to that that part of the conversation. But it, it, he he make the, he makes the film as if he hates the country. And it's it, you can feel it. It's, <laughs> it's a really, real love letter. And Australian and Australians really under and the Australians really understand what he's talking about because he just identifies these elements of the of the Australian mindset um, that are just kind of scary. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's got the brilliant Jack Thompson. In it, yeah, so I'll have to Jack Thompson is Jack Thompson. Donald Pleasance. Wow. Donald Pleasance. Oh, totally. All right. This has been a lot of fun. Nick, thanks Absolutely. for joining us, man. Well, man, it's been great. I've had a great time. And a big thanks also to Harry Stranger for helping us get all of this sorted out on all of our schedules. He's a top man. Yeah. I've never met he him. He's fantastic. He's Australian. With a great name. <laughs> we haven't either, but he's been great. Thank you, Thank Harry. Thank you, Harry. And Meredith. Yep. And Meredith. And all of you. Longtime cohorts. And for all of you out there, we hope you enjoyed the show. Just head on over to thenextreel.com where you can find out all the places on social media where you can follow us. And we invite you to support us over on patreon.com slash thenextreel. Don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and comment as well. It really does help more people find us. Thanks again for tuning in. And for everyone out there, it's showtime, folks. I'm gonna use you to be my I love having these wonderful chats on movies we like with all these industry guests talking about some of their favorite movies. So many great conversations on that show about so many great movies. We have so much fun having these conversations, but producing the show week after week does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these incredible conversations. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all the adapted film discussions on the Next Reel's family of podcasts. Purchasing through our links supports the show. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy your copy of the original source material. 
Original material for movies we like. Movies like Casino Royale. The Silent Partner. Never Let Me Go. Silver Linings Playbook. There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's Oil. I believe it's Oil! Oh yeah, I forgot the exclamation point. (laughs) Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. TheNextReel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's right. Head over to TheNextReel.com slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today. (laughs) 